Chinatown is not over. In fact, I think it's going to get better and better in terms of, you know, destination foodie places to eat. Um, but I think the cost of it is the same cost of gentrification everywhere. You know, when we get a howling raise and the items are priced at a price point that the locals can't afford, what does that mean for the locals? And, you know, when you take a look at the grannies, like I said, selling a dozen oranges for a dollar on Broadway during the day, they want to know that they can stay in their homes. And they want to know that they have an accessible grocery store. Hello and welcome to Here in LA, Chinatown edition. Today, you get to meet Joey Ng. This is actually a shout out to Shane Nickerson. When I told Shane last year that I was going to do this podcast, he said, forget about interviewing strangers in LA. You've got the coolest friends, Tony. Just interview them and you'll have a hit. Well, Shane knows a few things about hits, so I immediately disobeyed him. What you're going to hear in this episode uh, is two friends talking. Joey and I have known each other for years and years and years, and it's exactly what Shane would have wanted. Um, and in this episode, you're going to hear Joey talk about her time as American Apparel founder Dove Charney's right hand, about living in that mansion in uh, on top of uh, Silver Lake, about what it's like to live in Chinatown, where she lives now, uh, all the cool places to eat there, and what the hell is going on with the violence toward Asians in the USA. And if you're lucky, you may hear in the background Joey's newborn baby, fresh out of nothingness, just suckling on her mom's bazooms. So crank it and enjoy. Hey everybody, I'm in Chinatown with Joey Ng. Hi everybody, I'm Joey Ng. Do you go by Joey Ng or are you Joey Nix? Are you Joey Nix Ng? It uh, just depends on who I talk to. I'm an international woman of mystery. You sure as hell are. Uh, we say that because you are originally from Canada. I'm originally from Hong Kong. What? Yeah, I was born in Hong Kong and then we moved to Canada when I was a baby. And then we moved around a lot. And then I moved around some more. Because your parents were running from the law. I plead the fifth. Oh. Um, so does that mean you have three passports? I have one passport. I'm in the process of naturalizing as an American citizen. So I have two. And then I have residency in Hong Kong. That's pretty awesome. Do you want to have a... Chinese passport? No. So I was born in Hong Kong when it was still a British colony. So at the time, I would have been born with a British national overseas nationality. That sounds so pretty if cool. I kept that, you know, had my parents not foregone it for a Canadian citizenship, then I would be able to get access to Britain or a few years ago, all of Europe. But Brexit. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay, so you, you grew up in Toronto. I grew up in Vancouver and Hong Kong, and we would move around like every year or summers in Hong Kong, school years in Canada, or vice versa. So it was like every year or two, we were on a plane for 19 hours and living somewhere else for a couple of months. Why do I think of you as a Toronto person? Because I went to tr 
University of Toronto. Okay, there we go. And um, which so University of Toronto? What? What's your mascot over there? I don't know. Is it the Beavers? <laughs> I feel like I did have a lot of school spirit, but it wasn't like sports. <laughs> what was it? Just partying? Yeah, like I was the social chair on one of North America's oldest student councils. Oh. The University College Literary and Athletic Ooh. Club, Society, Society. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to ask you some stereotypical things. Okay. You're an Asian lady. Correct. Your mom from your social media seems to be a tiger mom. Would you say she was? Absolutely. Now, uh, right now, there's a, a sweet angel suckling from your, your, you got some boobies now. I know. They're big gazongas. <laughs> Are you a tiger mom? I'm trying not to be. Why? Because I think it's a lot of pressure. You ended up fine? I guess. By whose, by whose definition? Mine. I am the judge. I well, judge. What's, what's fine to you? Like, okay, let's, let's, you're a vice president of a technology music company. Every, every incredible, uh, producer, engineer, mixer uses output, which is who you work for. Yeah. That sounds pretty cool. You got a big, tall, handsome husband. That's right. You got a view of downtown LA. Yep. Somebody just showed up with Girl Scout cookies. You did. <laughs> That's right. With my favorite. You're doing you're doing good. Okay. Right? Like I I guess, but if you've been raised by a tiger mom, there could always be more. Right. And that's where the pressure is. Exactly. There's never enough. Yes. Um you're never good enough. Are your parents the type that didn't tell you that they loved you? Yes. So when was the last time that they said, I love you? They really eased up after I had kids, which was just three years ago. So like it wasn't part of the vernacular to say like, I love you. I miss you. Goodbye. Take care or whatever. There wasn't a lot of like physical or verbal affection. Mm -hmm. But I think like as I got a white husband and had a mixed race child they're like okay let's like celebrate holidays now and tell each other we love them and miss them as if like now that we've absorbed some of like mainstream western culture you know it's going to be okay to say i love you but before then like that's not that's not part of um the parental vocabulary so to speak so if you had married an asian man the i love you's wouldn't have flowed as freely I don't know. I think it has to do with the actual Chinese language, though. Like it, it's almost cringy to say I love you because the word love is very much like a romantic word, like between couples. Right. Whereas like when you think of love for a family, it's really more about honor and respect. Mm. But, you know, you wouldn't necessarily tell that to your like seven-year-old like i honor you or i respect you or i care for you or i blank whatever and like mm -hmm. you certainly wouldn't say i love you because that's like for your lover right so when you have to translate that into your second language it's like well i wouldn't say it in my first one so i'm not going to adopt it in the second it doesn't like come to mind mm -hmm. you live in chinatown asterisk 
Yes. So I live in the border of Echo Park and Chinatown, right at the foot of Dodger Stadium. And after I moved here, I learned that it was called a Victor Heights. Victor Heights. Yes. After Victor Beaudry. Beaudry. So my favorite Jack in the Box is on Beaudry. And it cuts over to, uh, what is that? Beverly? What, what? It, it goes kind of to the west of downtown. It's 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 a good shortcut if the, if the one ten is is busy and you're trying to go north. Get on Beaudry, and it can take you to Dodger Stadium, basically. Yeah, if you just want to cut through to downtown or the Union Air or K Town or whatever, it's a good shortcut. Um, but Victor Beaudry and his brother, one of them or both of them, were, were French Canadians in Canadians. Los Angeles. Yeah, and I think they owned so much of L.A. that eventually one of them became mayor of L.A. I need to fact check this. Good. But where I live is named after Victor. Hell yeah, Victor. Shout out. Uh, are you a Dodger fan? I was a Dodger fan the year they won. <laughs> because I don't understand sports. Like, I was becoming a fan as someone was, like, whispering in my ear, like, what all the baseball terms mm-hmm. were. Um, but I don't consider myself a Dodger fan when there's like a 500 car pile up outside of my house and I can't get home. True. Which is probably a lot of the time. Okay. Let's uh, shift gears real quick. Uh-huh. Your people, the Asians, are getting beat up on the streets. Way worse than beaten up. I think we're being hunted and killed. Really? Yeah. I mean, just a couple weeks ago, in Chinatown on Broadway, a man was stabbed more than 20 times in broad daylight. Did they catch the uh, the the stabber? Yeah, so the victim w- managed to like hold down the person who oh, was God. stabbing them. Good. Um, and you know, was an inch from losing his life, but wow. you know, the the perpetrator was apprehended. Good. But it's scary. Why? Why are you people being attacked? All you want to do is create ramen pop-ups and have night markets. I mean, I think we want to do a lot more than that. Um, You know, besides centuries of racism um, and, you know, being interned in this country or blocked from immigration and like denigrated and sort of seen as second-class citizens in the last few years because of COVID. And I think the rhetoric used in media or by certain politicians calling COVID the Kung flu or blaming the virus on China has really, you know, turned the focus on East Asians in general. So anyone who could remotely be perceived as being from China as a target. Mm. Um, and you know, microaggressions like slurs or, you know, using that kind of hateful language on the news or every day on the bus at school, you know, microaggressions can turn into violence, Mm. real violence, fatal violence. What, what should LA do to protect? I mean, Chinatown to me seems like. I would feel safe if I was a a Chinese person or an Asian person there, right? Like, isn't that home base? Isn't that like safe zone? There's really not a lot going on over there, as far as I could tell. 
not this Chinatown. So I wouldn't call this the real home base. Um, I mean, just the history of Chinatown. The Chinatown that we have now is relatively new. It was formed in the 60s after the real Chinatown was basically forced out of where they built Union Station and moved north. And I think a bunch of like Disney architects built this Chinatown. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and more uh, of the actual like immigrants, Chinese immigrants or descendants of former Chinese immigrants moved east to the San Gabriel Valley. Mm. And that's why all the good food is there. Yeah. You know, all of the store signs are in Chinese. I know the street signs here have some Chinese, but really this is... It's a small world Chinatown and not the real Chinatown. <laughs> and I do think that a couple years ago, I'd be like, Chinatown's a super safe place right. to live. You know, like, you know, one of these grannies selling, you know, 12 oranges for a dollar on the street aren't going to attack me. Mm. But because I think of Trump era racist rhetoric paired with the pandemic and ignorance and, you know, everyone's having a hard time. So who are you going to punch down to? Mm -hmm. You know, I think Asians are are the ones at the receiving end of those punches. So mm -hmm. we're not even safe in our own homes, um, in our neighborhoods or in other areas where there's fewer the, fewer of us. You could have lived anywhere. Why did you choose Chinatown? I was living in downtown before this because I had just moved back here from New York. So I wanted to live somewhere that I could walk. That's why I chose downtown. And when I had it, I when I got pregnant, I was like, I can't raise a kid in a downtown apartment. I still wanted to stay really close. And so when I opened an email in my inbox from Zillow and it was a photo of the view from my living room of the perfect skyline picture framed by the window. I told my husband, I'm like, we're buying this place. And we gave the first offer and it was the winning offer and now we're here. Oh, this is a condo? You own this place? Yes. I didn't know that. It's actually a TIC, a tenants in common, which is becoming more common in LA. It's what they do in SF. A lot because real estate is really expensive there and the architecture lends itself to sort of a condo existence but more of like a co-op what would be the major difference between a condo and a tick um it's usually cheaper because there are limited mortgages that you can get so in sf you have lots of options because it's more common there but in la only two banks will offer you a mortgage for itic um, so that's the major difference, but you know, otherwise I feel like people who own condos live in a building of hundreds of tenants right. and you kind of like live in your, your unit and like, that's about it. And you might have an, an occasional HOA, but if you're in a TIC, all of the owners are co-owners of the entire building. So like you really have to be a solid unit and like com communicate to each other frequently. Like you guys are all bosses and running the show of your building. So you guys had to be approved by the the others no we were the first ones in here oh so you get to judge no you don't have to approve each other to move in uh -huh. but you know we have to be cooperative with each other nice what made you move to la from canada the most perfect country there is 
I, at the time, had a boyfriend who was in a band. <laughs> and he was Canadian and American. Uh-huh. But in order for his band to really blow up, he needed to focus on being in the States. Oh. And I was like, I'm going to come with you. And I really wanted to like figure out a way to make it work. And at the time, I was a full-time blogger. That's how we met. That's right. And I also worked at American Apparel part-time. Um and I had left my job in the advertising industry to be a full-time blogger and work at American Apparel, like a cool hipster girl. Um, and I realized that my only ticket to moving to the States and possibly being with that boyfriend was through American Apparel because its headquarters were in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that the CEO, Dove Charney, was accessible, especially if you're a cute young girl. And so I created a website and I had this whole media plan um for the canadian region to be like i can be your marketing manager for canada out of your la office or your new york office or whatever it is and i just like took initiative and pitched it um and i got the job i wanted how long did it take from your original pitch to the job offer it took a while for dev to see the pitch but you know, he was very willing to just like give me an exercise. So what the exercise was like, there's going to be an event coming up in Toronto where you live. We're going to have a warehouse sale. So what a warehouse sale is like one to $10 second quality goods. So maybe a t-shirt has a pen mark on it or like a little hole or something. So we're going to sell it for a couple bucks, but I want you to make a big deal out of it. Um, you get no budget whatsoever. Let's see what you can do if you think you're so great at your job. Um, but because I was a full-time blogger, probably one of like the top 10 bloggers in Toronto <laughs> back in 2008, I really understood what influencer marketing was and blog marketing was back then. So I was like, okay, you won't give me any money. I can't buy any advertising, but can you give me gift cards? So I essentially you know, was using influencer marketing tools before influencer marketing even had a name for it and got all of the bloggers to cover this event. And I was like, and you're going to get like free clothes. Mm. So like, you know, when they're cashing out like $200 worth of clothes on a gift card and I was like, this is all like $5 crap. Um, (laughs) But you're giving us so much media coverage. We ended up with like a line across multiple city blocks. Uh, The news came and covered the line. And I think we made a quarter million dollars in that weekend just selling like really, really cheap damaged goods. And so Dove called me the Saturday night of a Friday to Sunday sale and was like, you're a genius. You're a prodigy. We've got to meet you. We've got to talk. And so before the sale was even over, I was on a plane to L.A. with a duffel bag (laughs) and I didn't go home to Toronto for like five years. Yes. Now, I'm going to ask this question because I know the answer. Mm -hmm. Where did you live when you flew from Toronto to L.A.? I lived in the Garbett House, which is the one mansion in Silver Lake at the top of the hill with a 360-degree view of Los Angeles. The American Apparel Mansion. That's right. You You were living in. Yes. Now, before people get the wrong idea that you're in a a circular waterbed with Dove in this this house it there was a lot of people living in this mansion yeah i mean it is a mansion it's a massive house it's got like a dozen bedrooms 
each one has a bathroom you know oh really yeah you know a formal living room a formal dining room and the kitchen and stuff so it feels more like a employee dorm <laughs> than it does like one man's home right but it does still feel like a man's home uh dove is not married and and when i when i was in that mansion it kind of reminded me of the playboy mansion and also elvis presley's elvis's house in memphis because for example in your home there's the woman's touch everywhere <laughs> yeah at dove's house it was kind of cold um cement floors not a lot of flowers not a lot of pink stuff like that same with elvis's house it seemed like this is a dude's house playboy mansion very dudish and old and a little bit stuffy would you say the same with dove's place I mean, the home was built in the 20s by the Garbutts, who were, I think, owners of like, like gas stations or like mm. some petrol company. So they had a lot of money. They spent their money um, on the silver screen, like Charlie Chaplin would stay at their home. And I think the owners who had it before Dove did a lot to like keep it in its like 1920s glory so yes the it does feel cold because like the whole house is made of stone because i think the garbets were really afraid of fires oh. so like nothing was made of, out of wood um and so like i don't think dev's done any like interior decorating like the kitchen looks like it's from the 70s from i think the gay couple who owned it before and had all these like cutesy little french tiles everywhere and it just hasn't been updated so the touches that felt like dove or american apparel s were really the tchotchkes mm -hmm. and you know i wouldn't say that his taste was particularly masculine or feminine but definitely very mid-century very like italiano memphis design oriented mm -hmm. so you know, I think it's all the rage now, but, you know, a lot of like Italian designer furniture, glass, chrome, leather and like collectibles, like little figurines or definitely um, graphic design, art prints everywhere and lots mm -hmm. of magazines and stuff. So the house itself, I don't think was indicative of Dove's taste, more like the things in it. Well, also through you, I learned He's a workaholic, like a true workaholic. Mm -hmm. And any energies that he has about art or decoration are not going to be at a, about his house. He wants to make that catalog look cool. He wants to make his line look cool. So in, in a lot of ways, it seemed like the house was just a place where he slept. And I don't think he even sleeps there anymore. He, he just loves to work. Yeah. He's obsessed. Yes. I think as many successful business owners and founders are, you know, they can't stop thinking about their vision and their business. And so that's what they do all day, all night. You have to be obsessive to gain that level of success or notoriety. Mm -hmm. You also told me when you guys had a new distribution center or a new computer center in Orange County or near Orange County, he got uh, an air mattress and slept in that facility for a long time. Yeah, and so when people were talking about Kanye setting up a mattress in Mercedes-Benz Stadium, like, I've seen that before. <laughs> but, okay, but you said other driven CEOs 
are obsessed too. I I don't know too many other stories other than Dove and Kanye. You don't think Steve Jobs was like that? The man didn't even want to spend time deciding on his outfit. Good point. You know, it's like every waking moment was dedicated to Apple. And I think for Dove, every waking moment is dedicated to Los Angeles apparel. Final question for you about Dove, because a lot of people have a perception of who he is mm -hmm. and he is an outrageous character. He wants to appear outrageous, I imagine, to the press, but um, a lot of women are rubbed the wrong way by him. Here you are, definitely a feminist, definitely somebody who calls it like you see it. Yes. And I mean, your, your blog was called Sass. You know, and you epitomize that. Uh -huh. um, you worked very closely to him for five years. First of all, I have, I have more than one question. Yeah. How often would he call you if you were on the road in a day? He would call at all hours at any time. So it could be 4 a.m. It could be 11. It could be whatever. And I think the most like famous text um, that everyone who worked there would receive is just please call. So he would text you saying, please call. Interesting. And you would call. We would all be at his beck and call. If it was four in the morning and he texted you and you were asleep and you weren't able to get back to him till like eight or nine, would he be upset? We weren't sleeping. You're we not were in our sleep. 20s and traveling the world and working and making great money and like being with other creatives. Like we weren't sleeping. We were working and partying. So he never got mad at you for not getting back to him quickly no because i would always get back to him quickly you were the perfect employee i don't know about that you were there for five years what was your title over there i was there for almost eight years <laughs> um and on paper i was the marketing director but really i was you know an apprentice i did whatever he did and there were a lot of people in his inner circle who did that and you know i think i credit a lot of my success and how I operate as a manager to him, like what to do and what not to do. But, you know, the thing that he taught us all was you have to inspect with respect. So you can't lead someone on something if you aren't willing to do it yourself mm. and down to the tiniest details. So it's like he would stand up on a toilet in the back room um, at a store and if there was dust in the air vent he would you know grab a Swiffer or shop vac and like dust it himself wow mm -hmm. wow yeah you need to care about all of the details because each like half percent or one percent you give could that long tail could could matter a lot to a business um the business model when you were there mm -hmm. I thought was flawless you make the stuff in LA. Yeah. You ship it to your own stores and a little bit online. Yeah. All the the cute girls are getting photographed in LA. Um it's 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 farm to table basically but for clothes. Vertically integrated is the term. But the, the only flaw though is that it's being made in downtown LA not far from here. Right? Is and it a flaw? That's what is I'm it, asking you. You know, like we're talking a lot about, you know, consumer goods now being ethical and sustainable. And a lot of that can be like, oh, you can recycle our box, but it's manufactured in a sweatshop, you know, like 
what's really ethical like i think it's ethical to pay the manufacturers the people sewing your clothes a fair wage Mm -hmm. so like it might i don't know if it was a huge flaw in terms of the pnl sheet but i don't think it was an ethical flaw well your competition is making their stuff in in china yes and they're able to sell i remember um i had a girlfriend who i bought um Disco pants, they, they were called, I think America yeah. called them, which were super tight, like latex almost looking. Yeah, they were based on vintage football shorts. It just looked hot. On the right girl, it just looked hot. Yeah. And she was like, I want some of those. And I was like, baby, for you, anything. And I look and it's like, $90? Hmm. <laughs> but that same kind of disco pants at Forever 21 probably would have cost half that price, right? Yeah. Because they're quarter. made... Or, or even less, right? Because they're made in China and probably not the best quality compared to yours. True? Yeah, there's quality in the fabrics. But again, with the ethics, it's like, do you really want to be eating food that costs a dollar? Like if something is from the dollar menu, like do you really think that that's good food for you? And do you really think a t-shirt should cost $4 or $7 or $11? Like you're going to wear this. Like if it only costs you $11, consider the markup, consider the fabrics and the manufacturing. Like who is suffering on the other end because you don't want to pay what it's worth. Like to you, you're like, oh my God, $90. Like I'm going to buy the $20 one. And you're like, yay, I got a deal. But then the ethical implications on the other end of the garment worker who has to make those pants for pennies an hour. Like, do you really want to be that person to perpetuate that cycle? Do you think that was going through the heads of all the girls who were lined up to buy American Apparel? Yes, I think that's why we all push the boundaries of work-life balance because we knew it was for this greater good of ethical wages. I love it. Like I would take a call at 4 a.m. because, you know, if I can do anything to, to keep all of these immigrant families at work at a higher wage than what they can get somewhere else, like, you know, I've contributed a little bit. Let me ask you some other stereotypical questions. Okay. There's a new Pixar movie about Asian people in Toronto. Yes. It's specifically a Chinese middle schooler in Toronto. So it definitely hits home on several levels. It's called... um, Turning Red. Turning Red. Yes. And it's... I mean, everybody loves this movie. Mm -hmm. It's... The most streamed movie premiere on Disney Plus. Is it really? Yes. Um, Did you see yourself in any of these characters? I didn't see myself in these characters, but I loved seeing the city and the diversity in the whole cast of characters. So, I mean, I feel like people in America 
you know, like to pick on like, why, why are there people in headscarves? You know, they're just doing this for tokenism and and such. And I'm like, have you ever been to Canada? Like, have you ever (laughs) been to Toronto? Like everywhere you look, it looks like a shampoo ad. You know, we're not, we're not do, we're not casting for diversity. It truly is diverse. It's a city where like, you know, you can be Muslim and wear a headscarf and be best friends, you know, with the, Chinese Canadian kid and then your other best friend is South Asian and your other best friend is Jewish and your other best friend is you know something or other or a mix or it's like very normal for races to socialize with each other whereas I think America has a lot of segregation still so correct me if I'm wrong but that kind of felt like Queen Street that they filmed a lot of that at um, or that section of Toronto. Yeah, Chinatown and similar to College, Queen, etc. Definitely downtown. Yeah. Uh, so would you say that that area of Toronto is more diverse than most areas of L.A.? You know, when we talk about diversity, it's not just in the numbers. Because I think if we were to compare the numbers of like how much percentage white versus Asian um, versus black or Latino, etc., it might be pretty similar by the numbers. Mm -hmm. But the difference in L.A. and a lot of America is that we are segregated by neighborhoods, you know. And you don't do that in Canada. I don't. I think we do less of that. Right. You know, I'm not saying that Canada has no race issues. We definitely have our own share of problems there. But, you know, we are in a room. You're black. I'm Chinese. My husband is white. But I don't see a lot of rooms like this. In L.A.? No. Right. Whether it's in workplaces or restaurants or whatever it is. Like, in Echo Park, for example, if you walk into two different bars, you're either going to walk into a bar that's like 90% Latino or you're going to walk into a bar that's like 95% white. And there might be like one black guy and one Asian girl and it's the two of us. Mm-hmm. Right. Even though L.A. wants to celebrate its diversity, like we all live here, but we like stick to our own, I think. Yeah. And, and likewise, you say the new Chinatown is in San, Ga- San Gabriel. Yes. Which also has a lot of Latinos, mm-hmm. but not a lot of blacks. No. And kind of not really a lot of whites either. No. Yeah. And if you go to, say, West Adams, same thing. It's like you would stand out if you weren't black. And if you, you know, went to Highland Park, you would stand out if you weren't white or Latinx. Okay, let's talk about Chinatown a little bit more. Okay. And I'm so happy to be talking to a Chinese-Canadian-American. In Chinatown. Because I am lost when I go to Chinatown. It does not seem authentic to me. It, it doesn't seem like I'm going to get the best Chinese food here or even good Chinese food here. I might get the slippery shrimp at uh, whatever that is. Do you know the, do you know the one I'm, I'm talking about? Are you talking about Yang Chow or Hop Wu? Yes. Yang Chow. Should I avoid Yang Chow? No. So I do think that there are a wave of second or third generation Chinese Americans sort of establishing like what we would call good Chinese food in Chinatown. But the term like good food to me 
is also something that I'd like to challenge, right? Because like who's determining what's good? You know, like French chefs or like the writers at Eater LA or whatever it is. Like there is a place for old school Americanized Chinese food like the slippery shrimp or the fried rice or Kung Pao chicken. And there's also a place for Hainan chicken rice that's been braised for 18 hours and $18 a plate versus $7 a plate. Like they're, they both taste good. You know, the Mm -hmm. perception of good, I think is very Westernized and like, it must be quote unquote clean or it must, you know, cost like $36 or whatever it is. There's an art to all of this food. When I say good, I just mean it tastes good. I don't care if it's greasy. I don't care if it's healthy. I just want it to taste good. So when people say, where can we find some good Chinese? The last thing I'm thinking is, oh, is it healthy? Is it locally sourced? You know, Um, because I don't think about that when they ask for tacos that are good. (laughs) Right? Um, I mean, I think that for a long time, if you wanted like authentic Chinese food, you would have to go to San Gabriel Valley. But there are places in Chinatown that I love, like, Steep and Pearl River Deli that are making amazing, authentic, current generation iterations of Taiwanese, Cantonese, and Chinese dishes. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Are these places kind of newer? Yes, in the last few years. Okay. Um, Why is the hot fried chicken a thing in Chinatown? I think when Roy Choi set Chago in Far East Plaza and because he's a phenomenal chef and does a lot for underserved communities, it gave that specific building social cachet. And so as other Asian businesses went in there, say like Bauhaus, which is now closed and is now was Pearl River Deli before Pearl River Deli moved to a new location. So did non-Asian restaurateurs. They're like, if Roy Choi can bring a line to Chinatown, we're going to do the same thing. And I think that's why the hot chicken place, I can't even remember its name right now because they don't need it very much, um, did so oh, well. Oh, Howlin' Rays? Howlin' Rays. There we go. Uh, talk to me about dim sum. Is dim sum in Chinatown over? No. Um, I order dim sum from Golden Dragon on Grubhub sometimes because they're the only ones that have chung fun on the Grubhub menu. I know that's very lazy. I should probably just walk down and get it. Um, You know, at a certain point, like proximity exceeds like 10% in quality to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I can either drive to Monterey Park or I can, you know, get it right here. Oh, Ocean Seafood. I don't know if Ocean Seafood has reopened since the pandemic, though. I think that was the only time that... I've, oh, no, I, I've had... I think that Didn't was the first time... did you come with my mom? Yes. Yeah. That was the first time i ever... Ocean Seafood had really great dim sum in it was good. And it was a huge room. Yeah, like a banquet hall. Yeah, giant. What is the accessible grocery store in this area? There is none. Mm-hmm. So there used to be one called Ai Hoa. I'm not saying that right. I think it's based in Vietnamese. Um, 
and the owners increased the rent and forced them out and they're looking to redevelop that place so there's no more grocery store in chinatown i asked because um when i worked at kpcc they were going to open up the um the walmart neighborhood grocery store and a lot of people were upset about it including a lot of the longtime chinese bakeries who said you know walmart's going to make a cake like just a regular old vanilla cake for three dollars yeah. And we charge $10 because that's a cake should cost $10. <laughs> yeah. And ours is made out of real sugar from real old ladies. And we've had these cakes here forever. And they're going to kill our friggin' bakery. And, and Walmart's argument was, well, there are no grocery stores, like, act, like real traditional grocery stores, um, American grocery stores around here we're we're not going to do what you're afraid of turned out walmart was the one that went out of business <laughs> and these chinese bakeries survived somehow yeah i kind of feel like it's ukraine against russia like they just dug in and good graces whoever it was because it's not always about the lowest price but in this case if a grocery store comes to Chinatown, you know, I hope it's more of like a 99 ranch situation where they're offering Asian produce at lower prices and familiar items that the people who live here want, um, you know, as opposed to some other major corporation that are going to charge a lot more for things that they don't even want. Like, I don't want the grocery store to only pander to the new condominiums like the Llewellyn and sell like $9 pistachio milk. <laughs> like I would love for whomever, you know, puts in a bid to put a grocery store here to be like, yes, you know, we will sell 50 cent bunches of scallion. Or, you know, have community pricing or senior pricing or something like that. Or work with um, the local farmers and people who sell um, on the street and vendors and, and see how we can make it both work. You did not mention culture when you said why you moved here. But I assume that that's part of it, that you, you I feel like you're speaking Chinese to your kids, um, whether or not Fox wants to or not. He's going to hear a little Chinese out of you. Yeah. Is that Mandarin that you're talking to him with? I speak mostly Cantonese. Okay. Um, because I grew up in Hong Kong. But I would think that in L.A., if he were to expose to any Chinese, it would be Mandarin. Okay. So if you guys did decide to move, would you consider San Gabriel for an extended version of this? I would love to move to Alhambra, like some being walking distance to like downtown Main Street in Alhambra would be a dream because, you know, next to a boba place or a Korean barbecue is an Irish pub. So it seems like very much like our family where we have like the tall white dude and the little Chinese woman. Um, we can both find things that we like, like a solid pint and um, pepper lunch. Do you know what pepper lunch no. is? It's like a sizzling plate with like rice and cheese and beef and corn and Ooh. like the sauce and you mix it all together. Um, huh. Yeah, we had it for lunch yesterday. 
Um, See, so that would be you do great, know food. You know food perfectly. Yeah, that would be a really good mix. However, I want to shout out um, the local public school here in Chinatown called Castellar, which has one of the best Mandarin immersion programs. So while I would love a house with a yard, there's practically none in this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, I want to send my kids to a school where they'll be immersed in Mandarin. Let's wrap up with um, Shang. What's his name? Shang-Chi? It's Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi. Yes. Okay. The reason I know that you saw it was I quote unquote babysat that night for you. Yes. Which was the first time I've babysat in like 20 years. I mean, really, you came over and sat on the couch and I don't know, like watched the iPad. Or I watched the iPad. Did some reading or see, Netflix. I never touched your boy. And it you felt, probably didn't even see him because he was asleep in the room. Didn't see him in, in IRL. No, only through the pot. And then I just ate all of your food. Yeah, the You've incredible refrigerator full of cookies and good snacks. A lot of Asian stuff. I've I have no idea what I was eating, but it's delicious. Maybe we need to do another podcast where we just review the snacks in my pantry. <laughs> ten be, out of ten, all of them. It'd be a learning experience for me, because um, I mean I'm as Midwestern American as can get. And your fridge is not. Mm -hmm. So anyways, you came back from that movie super happy. Yeah. And it took me months before I actually watched it. And I could see why. It was a, it was a real movie. Yeah. And the action was incredible. Like, I don't want people to be like, this is a really great movie with an Asian lead. I'm like, this is just a really great movie. Like compared to a lot of other superhero and Marvel movies that had a real story, had a great backstory the action wasn't just like pow 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 i'm a big man you know it was art it was artistic yep it had lots of like badass female characters sure. you know like his sister was way cooler you know yeah. michelle yo always incredible like it was just a great movie aquafina was the perfect comedic uh, relief Mm-hmm. Ronnie Chang was in it, too. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I was watching it. I was trying to watch it through your eyes because um, you saw it at, like, uh, Alamo uh, Draft House. Yes. And I remember seeing Black Panther um, in Vegas, <laughs> which is nuts. But, and obviously, Disney Marvel is trying to appease the minorities of the world, even though I think you're not even the minority of the world. I Aren't Asian people the majority? I think the we're the super majority. Yeah. yeah. We're the world power. For sure. Domination. That's right. You can have it. You can have it. If we could have real Chinese food everywhere in this planet, good Chinese food everywhere, I'm I down. think I think that's the only way to go. <laughs> You're going to get us through the food? Yeah, like... If you haven't had the Hainan chicken rice from Pearl River Deli in Chinatown, and it's very hard to come by, you're going to have it and, and think, this is the best chicken I've ever had. And it's $18? Yes. How much? What do I get for this now? Because The best chicken you've ever had. But you're going to be like, nobody makes chicken as well as the Chinese do. Is it a half chicken and rice for 18 bucks? Or is it a whole chicken? I don't know the portion. It's a generous portion of chicken okay. with rice and sauces. Do I? Is there a side? Do I get like even a a, a quasi salad on it, the side? It's the chicken and the rice. 18 bucks. Yep. And you're like, 
What did I tell you earlier? Podcaster? They should charge $48. There for you that go. Dish. Honestly. Where is this place at here in Chinatown? Um, they've recently moved to a new spot on Hill Street. Okay. Um, but yeah, look up Pearl River Deli on Instagram. I think it's at PRD underscore LA. Okay. Um, do you have any more shout outs before we go? Let me just double check that that's the right URL. She's checking the address here or the URL. Yes. At PRD underscore LA. Or another place I really love is called Steep, and they are Steep underscore LA. Beautiful. Uh, any other shout outs you got? I don't know. This is your podcast. Do you, do you have anything else to ask me? I want to ask you, were your, was your mom happy that you married a white man? I think my mom was happy that I got married, period. I think she was she nervous? Was, she was expecting me to not marry within my own race. Because you had dated a lot of tall, pretty white boys. And black men and mixed men. Um, but not Asians. But not a ton of Asians. I have dated Asians. But, you know, her theory was that I would get married multiple times and just have mixed race children of like all different mix and be like she was like your kids are going to be the united colors of benetton <laughs> i mean i'm on my second marriage who's to say what oh that's true technically you are huh yeah i forgot about that guy yeah we all forgot about him you i think you told me to forget about him and i always obey you yeah <laughs> good boy so he was a tall white guy i can't remember right okay so your mom wasn't hung up about having uh, another Chinese man to boss around? No, because she took one look at Adam and she was just like, don't tell him I said this. She said this in Chinese. Don't tell him I said this, but he's better looking than you are. Wow. Is that a compliment? Yes. <laughs> that like I married up to a much more handsome person than I am beautiful. I mean, no disrespect, but she is not telling the truth <laughs> i mean there's nothing wrong with you adam but this is a beautiful woman right here i know she's like look at his big blue eyes really and his and his nice hair would she be marrying a white guy if she was 30 something i don't know i don't know that it's the whiteness that she likes and just you know the individual facial features huh and incredible stature that my husband has that she's impressed with. And so the reason that, that you were dating tall guys and ended up marrying a tall guy, I always thought was instructions from your mother. Yeah, I think it was like a subtle brainwashing over the years. Like there's a lot of like internalized racism and internalized colorism in Asian cultures. And I think that like when your mom is constantly like, talking down about short men or you know telling you to stay out of the sun you like internalize like oh so like i have to procreate with someone taller and paler than i am because because those are desirable traits because of internalized racism and colorism where like tall pale people make more money and have more advantages in their life Do across they? all cultures if i did the, if i if i ran the numbers 
a short, darker person will make less money than a tall, lighter person. Yeah. And for every inch above six feet you are, there's like some incremental average salary that you get. Wow. So your mom knew this and whispered into your ear and you were all ears. I think it was just a, a subtle, like I said, a subtle like indoctrination of this. And like you can either choose to rebel against it and be like, no, you know, like I'm going to be with someone my height who's brown, um, <laughs> you know, or you, whatever. I've tasted the rainbow. I ended up with Adam, but it doesn't mean that that's like the only thing I'll go for. Joey, you've been fantastic. Everything I expected. Thank you. We're very happy that you're here in Chinatown representing because you are the future of Chinatown. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. If people want to follow you on Instagram, where should they go? At Joey No Good. Joey No Good. That's right. Which is kind of a play on the NG. Yes. My last name. With what, no vowels. What, what 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 balls you people have to have a last name with no vowels? We're just trying to trip up people who can't speak Chinese. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. How great was Joey? You know who we would babysit for even if it meant just eating all the food out of their fridge? Our Patreons. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony, Jordan, here's a ticket to the movies. Here's one of those $18 chickens. Here's a whole damn dim sum gorge fest. Every donation you hand over helps us keep this insane project a rolling. So shout out to our Patreons, Nancy Rommelman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Grinky, Ben Welsh, Henry Furman, Jen Adams, The Lonely Chair, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, and Dougie Gyro. <laughs> Dougie Gyro? Dougie Gyro! Want to hear your name at the end of next week's show? Go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. Also, shout out to our Angelinos. To be an Angelino, all you got to do is pay us, uh, PayPal us 25 bucks or more, and we will list you on the Here in LA website that Mark Johnson is building forever. You will also be given a number to denote how early you got in to make this dream come alive. Angelino number one is Allie Miller, two, George Wright, three, Rita Joanne, four, Jason Sutter, five, Grant Hotton, six, Rob Baker, seven, Kev Cheng, eight is Brenda Garcia, and nine is John Griffiths. Just PayPal your hard-earned cash to busblog at gmail.com and just know you're a good person. Want to be a good person, and but you just pushed out BB number two, and you're trying to save up for two college funds? Well, we've got an alternative for you. Post your favorite episode on your Facebook. Post two. Tweet something nice about us. Speaking of tweets, anytime you see me tweet an episode, retweet it. Oh my God. And for God's sake, tell your friends. Tell them how Here in LA is spelled, and then it's on Apple Podcasts and Google and Spotify. Here in LA is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who likes some hot chicken himself, Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. 
song by Oregon and Jordan Katz. Thanks for Cindy for creating the logo, Chen for inspiring this, and the Canadian blogosphere community led by Ramy the Minx, who made me aware of Young Sass way back in the day. Stop, Stop hating, 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 h